0: Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. This is Jackie Stein. And as always, I am here with Professor David Jess today. Hello. Saren. Hey. And Liz. Hello. And today we have our special guest star. We have Professor Harry Kaiser. He is the Gellert Family Professor and Associate Dean of the Applied Economics and Management Department here at Cornell University. Welcome, Professor Kaiser.
1: Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about a very interesting study that Professor Kaiser did um, on um, mad cow disease and some advertising that goes is associated with that. So yeah. to open with mad cow and he- mad
1: cow is sort of scary
2: stuff, right? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's very scary stuff because uh, if humans eat uh, meat that was tainted with mad cow, it's uh, they can get a disease or a syndrome called reichfeldt Yakov's uh, syndrome, which unfortunately is fatal, and it's an excruciating death. So it's it's it, when you talk about food scares and, and and food poisoning, when you add mad cow disease to the mix, it takes food scares to a, a scarier, a very scary level.
2: Yeah, it's not just a, a day in the in the bathroom the day after you're <laughs> exactly you're <laughs> going to exactly. be gone. So you to be gone, and <laughs>
1: it's a it's a horrible neurological uh, disorder that ends in death. Right. Um, is,
2: my understanding is that, literally, you start losing parts of your brain and exactly, uh, exactly, it it to function. It's,
1: it's a decay of your, your brain and a lot of a lot of current listeners probably won't remember, but back in the '90s, uh, this was in the news every night uh, because there was a, a massive outbreak in Great Britain. Thankfully, we never in the United States had the level. Of what it was in Great Britain, but in Great Britain there was like uh, thousands of cows that died, and over 150 people actually died uh, from this disease. Uh, so the news, if you watch the news every night, mm-hmm. uh, they're talking about this, and it and it really crippled, completely crippled the uh, the beef industry in yeah. Great Britain.
0: Yeah, and then I remember when it came to the United States, um, my family we didn't eat meat at all. We were, you know, we no longer went to eat fast food places and that was around
1: 2003
0: and that was when the first person was diagnosed back in like December 2003 so that was very scary for the United States and then there was a lot of um, consequences for the beef industry from Canada and the U.S. so it was a worldwide there's
1: kind of a funny story uh well I shouldn't say funny but an interesting story where uh, maybe six months prior to a mad cow being discovered in uh, cattle in the United States. It was discovered in uh, one cow in Canada. Okay. And immediately the US banned all beef imports from Canada, which didn't make Canada very happy about the situation. <laughs> so, right around Christmas time, the same year in 2003 a dairy cow, which interestingly enough was imported from Canada in the state of Washington, was discovered with it. And Canada, of course, immediately banned all the imports uh, of beef from the United States, along with a real large number of other countries banned imports. And I think over a two-year period, it, it resulted in the loss of $2 billion dollars in revenue.
0: So let's dive into the experiment. Uh, it was with you, Professor Messer, and um, Professor Wansink here at, at Cornell. So what were the details of the experiment? You had four different treatment groups?
1: Yes. It, let me just talk a little bit about the background okay. for a while. So this was a year, maybe six months after the incident. Mm-hmm. And let me just tell you what happened, by the way. There was like two days of shock in the beef market in the United States, but then everything kind of returned back uh, fairly much to normal. So there other than the loss of export markets, the domestic market demand actually increased the following year in the United States mildly. So there wasn't a real long-term pronounced impact due, due to the mad cow.
2: Which, which seems sort of bizarre, right? Which was bizarre. <laughs> so we
1: got interested in that and we said, wow, you know, what, what's going on here? I mean, mad cow is the most extreme version of a food safety incident. And there was a lot of economic behavioral research that shows, in the lab at least, that that these food scares can have a a major negative shock or impact on consumer willingness to pay or demand uh, for the products. So we decided to contact the Beef Board, and we found out that the Beef Board, uh, unlike the famous Tylenol incident where there was uh, poison uh, injected into a bottle of Tylenol uh, back in the 80s, and they, Tylenol, and, and people died, and tylenol, tylenol just took it off the market for like three months and didn't advertise at all. The beef industry did the exact opposite. They not only continued their ads, they upped their December and January advertising by like $6 million. The advertising didn't address the issue at all. It just said... Beef, it's what's for dinner, and they portrayed beef in a very positive light. And we wondered why they did that strategy. And then we decided to see if we could replicate in the lab kind of the situation. And I'll tell you later in the broadcast, but the results show that what they did was exactly what they should have done.
0: That's amazing, the intuition behind that. They just, maybe from experience, from looking at the Tylenol incident, but also... With the reaction, just knowing kind of to do that. You find that in a lot of different market forces.
1: Yeah, I think Brian Wansink had the hypothesis, and I agreed with him when we went mm-hmm. into this, that uh, the optimal strategy would have been to just not advertise at all. But we were found completely wrong on that in the study. So your question, going to your question now. Uh, So what we did was we designed a a study using staff from Cornell, not students, so we used staff to try to replicate more of a representative body for the United States. And it was a hamburger experiment. And so it was an experiment where we combined media information, both positive advertising and negative uh, mad cow, information on mad cow, and both. To see kind of how or whether uh, information, positive and negative, impacts consumer demand. And so we had several treatments. We had a control treatment where people just came in, bid on the hamburgers uh, that we auctioned off. And we used that as kind of a baseline uh, to compare what would happen to demand. And then we had a positive treatment. We had the same as the control except the people before they bid mm-hmm. watched five minutes uh, worth of uh beef, it's what's for dinner advertisements that were sponsored by the Beef Board. Then we had a negative five-minute uh, treatment where people, before they bit on the hamburgers, just saw a, a Nova clip uh, on mad cow disease uh, that talked in very gruesome terms about <laughs> what happened to the cows and what happened to the people. And they actually had they had some uh, clips of cows with it and they were not not well. <laughs> yeah,
2: so I've, I've seen this. It's... Uh, Gruesome is a good way to describe it. it. It was it was pretty negative. It was very all negative, the way through. Very
1: negative. And then they interviewed a guy that had uh, this uh, Kreutzfeldt jakobs oh. syndrome, <laughs> and uh, he was from Great Britain, and he was in a nursing home, and he wasn't you know he wasn't looking very very good. So that was our negative. Then we had a five minute where we clipped both the positive and the negative. So we had two and a half minutes of Mad Cow and two and a half minutes of. Um, of, of beef advertising and we flipped it, you know, so, uh, one, one session would see the advertising and then the mad cow and the, and the next session would see the reverse order. Um, so we wanted to see by, by including that treatment, we wanted to see, is there any impact of advertising on the negative, if there is a negative impact of the mad cow? It, it
2: would, I mean, yeah. I mean, just, just sort of thinking about rational thought about, about how you would address mad cow. It's scary. And certainly it should impact whether you want to eat beef or not. But it seems like it should in a way that's sort of permanent. It shouldn't be possible to just sort of... We we,
1: we, we hypothesize that there there are two ways to cope with scary information. Suppose you're a smoker and you just find out smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, and all these negative things. There's two ways to cope with that. One is behavioral, purely behavioral, where... I'm gonna quit smoking to deal with my my fear over this. And the other is psychological. and the other the psychological is an alternative to the behavioral where I'm gonna to continue to smoke, but I hate this fear that I've now have in me. So I, I look for other coping mechanisms to mitigate that. And maybe advertising, maybe a tobacco company could come up with a, a good advertisement where they where they target people that are fearful and they say, Oh, you know, life's short anyway. You might as well enjoy, life, you know, ways to reduce your fear because people want to reduce the fear. And so that's what we asked uh, in this study: Do people cope in a behavioral way where they quit eating beef, or do they use behavior? Do they use psychological coping mechanisms? Yeah. very good, very good. And so how did it how did it come out? It came <laughs> out very, very interesting. Uh, so. As you can imagine, the positive treatment, the the advertisement, people's bids went up in response to seeing that. People, I think they bid, rather than $2.50, they they bid $3.25 on average for the hamburger. And it was marginally statistically significant. So there's obviously some sort of positive impact. The negative treatment, the, the mad cow... Uh, people's bids went from 250 to $0. 70 cents. A <laughs> substantial drop, and and the number of zero bids tripled.
2: Yeah, I wow. could imagine. You yeah. know,
1: so I'd people were people were coping by a behavioral response. I'm <laughs> mm-hmm. not going to bid on it at all. But here is the most fascinating thing. Guess what happened uh, when we showed them both positive and negative uh, treatments? No clue. No clue. I mean, I I would guess personally. I would think you know. F- Fine, it might have some impact,
2: but I, I still think Critchfield-Jakobs is scary.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 and there's a great theory in psychology called the negativity effect. You, mm-hmm. you would think that that the mad cow would outweigh the positive of the average. It didn't. So the advertising completely mitigated the negative effect. Uh, in other words, bids went from, in the control group, to $2.75 to something like $2.75. It is absolutely
2: amazing. It's it cool. is. It is. Absolutely amazing. So I mean it's it's a demonstration of exactly how much power advertisers have, but but it's it's really interesting to me that they could they could combat this fear by just sort of distracting you and saying beef mm-hmm. it's what's for dinner, right? Yeah. It's it's look at this this sort of shiny object and, and get
1: this warm glow feeling about Good things with beef, right? Exactly. And the, and the experiments were all, I forgot to mention this, mm-hmm. were all conducted at lunchtime. So people were hungry. We're hungry. And mm-hmm. we were showing them these pictures of these beautiful steaks. Uh, these ads were really, really emotional. I mean, they they, they portrayed beef in a beautiful Beautiful uh, uh, light. And if you would look at, if I would show you the pictures that they had, assuming you you eat meat, you'd probably (laughs) go out and eat a steak for for dinner. So people, I mean, so people I think were looking, you know, if if the control group loved it because they didn't get any of this negative and they were able to buy the hamburgers and a lot of people did buy the hamburgers. Um, and the positive group got to do this, but the poor negative group uh, <laughs> uh, went <laughs> out and hungry. had a salad instead. <laughs> and so they consumed these hamburgers just right after they—, they did they- they That's did. amazing. They did. In fact, we had a lot of uh, grad students get fat that helped out on the experiment because we'd have to go over and buy 20, 20 hamburgers. So if we only sold eight of them, uh, the grad students would eat the hamburgers afterwards. They weren't they complaining, weren't but they, they they gained a few pounds and this uh, is by the volunteering. Of
2: doing food experiments, <laughs> you always get to to eat the remains. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: I just think this is crazy because it's right around the time of mad cow disease, so it was it was right at that time it's not like there was some time you know in between but it was actually a potential threat so And and at that time, advertising can, you know, change your entire feelings towards beef and willingness to eat it
1: and pay for it. I'm still shocked by the results. And and I would never claim, by the way, that this would always be the optimal strategy. Uh, You know, I'm not saying what Tylenol did. They might have done the optimal strategy by pulling it. So I think one of the things about doing a study in the lab— uh, is you can't gener- overly generalize the re- the results, but but I do believe that it is it is very interesting that the beef industry increased their advertising in response to this. Um, incidentally, they they didn't just do that; they also, in reality, they they, they went out on the talk shows and the news and uh, put up kind of a firewall saying that hey, consumers, uh, the the USDA does a great job of keeping your your uh, your food supply safe, we, we have the best record of any country, and so forth. But when I looked into this, by the way, I was actually appalled by the safety, uh, the safety of, of beef <laughs> and the inspection of beef for and mad cow in this country. And that,
2: that actually became an issue later on. It did.
1: It, it did. And in Japan, they, every cow is inspected for, for mad cow. Every cow. In the United States, it's like 1 in 10,000 cows are inspected or something <laughs> like that. I think wow. they do a little bit more frequently. However, I, I, I did find out from a person in the beef industry, and they just told me this this year and it makes sense, is, mm-hmm. is that when they take the cows to slaughter, they observe the cows. I mean, you can... Usually you can, if a cow has mad cow, you can, you can see it visually. Right. So they, they wouldn't slaughter a cow if it's got that sort of science. But thankfully uh, we don't really have a, uh, an epidemic of that mad cow in the United States.
0: Right. Because it, it was kind of from the source was how we're feeding the cow. So once we figured out that, what to feed them, right, then we kind of.
1: It kind of it mitigated mitigated it. the problem, yeah. and there were, the I think, about five or six cases after that that were okay. discovered. But it was always like there was a case in Alabama. There's always mm-hmm. only like one cow, so it's very, very isolated. Mm-hmm. And so, my my guess is that it probably never even got into the food supply, the food channel. Wow. Okay, nice. Wow. So how long do the effects of
0: advertising last? Do you think, like, if somebody saw this documentary, would they mm-hmm. never eat mag or would they never eat beef again, or would it be like a day later yeah. and they're like, oh, that's, it's okay?
1: That's a great question. I've done a lot of work on on advertising, and advertising does have what we call a carryover effect. So, in other words, if you watch an advertisement today, or if you watch the same advertisement over for for the next three or four days. Its effects last over time for longer than that, but there is somewhat of a decay. So, and, and, the, and the carryover effect will vary from commodity to commodity. So if you're talking about advertising for a frequently consumed items like food items, the carryover effect's not as long, uh, maybe five, six months. It's longer than you would think. But for some commodities, they last like up to a year and a half. There's a famous marketing study that was done by a guy named Clark back 30 years ago that looked at that, and he's kind of the one that was credited for kind of coming up with the fact that there is this carryover effect of advertising.
0: Which commodities last for a
1: year and a half? Uh, like cars, um, uh, okay. more less frequently consumed uh, products,
2: And is that more, I mean, does it have a longer effect for a branded object than a... Yes, absolutely. And
1: that's also because branded objects are more heavily advertised, much more heavily advertised. You know, uh, beef advertising, for example, their whole budget is maybe $40 million, which sounds like a lot, you know, in a a year. But Pepsi alone spends uh, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars a year on their marketing budget, so... $40 $40 million is for a whole category is, right. is not that much. Put differently, if you look at what's called advertising intensity, mm-hmm. that basically means the amount of advertising uh, relative to the industry level revenue. Mm-hmm. Most of these generic ads are like 0.25%. They're, in other words, the amount of money they spend on advertising is only about a quarter of a percent of what the total revenue is. If you look at branded products, it can be 35% to do very, very high. Budweiser wow. uh, beer would be probably 25, 30 percent.
0: I can see that because <laughs> their ads are everywhere. Yeah,
1: <laughs> or insurance. Yeah. I mean, insurance, uh, I, I yeah. see. Insu- I think insurance is probably mm-hmm. the most. It's everywhere. Yeah, which it. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, absolutely everywhere.
0: So has this kind of changed the industry in, in a way, not just the beef industry, but how um, other companies have followed in this approach to settling concerns for consumers? And just in not all our different research. Areas. I wouldn't
1: be so mm-hmm. bold to, to say that our research, but I, I will say that we shared the the research with with the Cattlemen's Beef mm-hmm. Board. That's what they're called. And they were, of course, elated because it basically said, good job, you did right. the right, the right mm-hmm. thing. And they shared that information with other livestock, with pork and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I think that uh, maybe not just due to my research, our research, mm-hmm. but, but more just the other... Uh, industries observing what right. what they did I think that was kind of a, a nice case study and lessons learned that uh, if you do have a if you do have a, a food safety incident which happens all the time mm-hmm. you don't pull your advertisements and, and try to hide you you you, you do a two-pronged strategy you, you continue to advertise and then you, you you go out and address the issue on with the media
2: so food scares are sort of one thing, but there, mm-hmm. there are also a whole bunch of things sort of popping up in our, our food system Excellent. where where people have fears of foods that, that for, for the most part, appear to be safe, mm-hmm. right? Thing, things such as, as GMOs, where there, you know there's a lot of data suggesting that, that these are basically safe foods. They're just like the other foods you have, but there are a lot of people who want to
1: avoid them. What, what do you know about... Those. That's a very good question, David. And that is why I became a behavioral economist midway into my career. Before that, I was a typical neoclassical economist that said, the only thing that matters are prices and income. Those economic variables are the only thing that mattered. About 20 years ago, I started to really get into consumer demand for agricultural Mm -hmm. food products. And what I learned from my econometric, my statistical studies then, was that That's absolutely the opposite of what really matters. Uh, Demographics, cultural, information, are in fact even more important uh, influences of consumer demand for food products than prices and income. And so then I, I, I just kind of discovered, with the help of some of my good colleagues, behavioral <laughs> economics and the and the and the fun and beauty of running experiments to to really be able to get at what matters uh, okay. to consumers when it comes to food. And yes, perceptions matter. Uh, when when people uh, are exposed to GMOs, even if they don't know what it means, it sounds something scary. And it does have a big negative, usually, impact (laughs) on on demand. But within that, though, Mm -hmm. what we find is that framing really matters. You can frame GMOs and get a positive response, but you can more easily frame it and get a negative response.
2: Yeah, it seems like... Politically, that's, that's uh, you know, the, the movements against GMOs have been very successful in trying to frame it as something negative. And some of that might just be the, the name itself. Genetically modified organisms yeah. just does not sound like something appetizing. Yeah.
1: But <laughs> well, we did a really interesting experiment where we looked at what is the impact of, of, of information when, or labels. When you label something as either contains it or free of, Contains it is kind of a negative. So if you present a label to consumers, and the consumers may or may not know anything at all about GMOs, but if you put contains GMOs, it's going to have a negative impact on their demand. But on the other hand, if you present to the same uh, consumers a label that says free of GMOs, you have no impact at all. You have no impact at all. You would think if if there's a negative uh, uh, impact, if contains it, then there should be a positive impact And the reason that we speculate that that's the result is this negativity effect. It's the same reason people respond to negative political ads, but they don't respond to positive political ads. So everybody says they hate, you know, negative political ads. They are effective. They have an impact, and the people that run them usually win the election.
2: Fury is a much bigger motivator. Right. In other words. If
1: I run against David for city council and I talk about how great I am, it's not going to have much of an impact. But if I say how, uh, how bad David is, uh, that will have an impact. And the interesting thing was on this experiment, the only way we could get free of to have a positive impact right. was. If you provided additional information about how bad the thing was, so okay. GMOs are bad because they're blah, 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 and this is free of GMOs, then you can get a positive impact. So this
2: gives some rationale to why, why the political movement has been to label the things with GMOs rather than to just have, you know, shelf label right. saying GMO free, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, think about it for a a retailer or a manufacturer, if they have to label GMOs and they decide to do uh, a free of, it's going to cost them money to do that. Uh, Their costs are going to go up. But it doesn't look, our research basically says the only way you're going to get to cover that cost to to increase your price is if you put free of and you include, by the way, GMOs are really bad or whatever. But the government's going to step in and say, you can't do that. You can say Frio, but you can't say, because uh, it's not true, you know? That's what the <laughs> FDA says.
0: Exactly, and that's so interesting because there are companies like that are are going towards GMO free. For example, Blue Apron, it, now they put a ton of expenses into expunging GMOs from their entire production system. And one of the representatives from the company was speaking to a class here in Dyson School the other day and said that they consider it as added value to the box of food that they're delivering, Mm -hmm. but they don't advertise all over their website or anything that it's GMO free. But if people are curious and concerned about the issue, they can easily find it on the website. So it's interesting that they would put in the expenses to do that when it has really no impact, but, and consumers aren't really, Totally concerned with it because they're 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 looking more for the service.
1: That's exactly but. right, and and here's the corollary to that. So, so you advertise this is free of, and you have really no impact at all on your price, but you do have a negative spillover, and that is you stigmatize the conventional or the GMO right. product. So it's kind of like a losing proposition, and and a good example of that is RBST. When RBST free. Milk was introduced in the, in the grocery store. Uh, there was some people that were willing to pay a, a premium, and they charged like a nickel a gallon premium. Today, all milk is RBST free, so that the, the stigma of RBST was so big that it got rid of it. But now, all the milk is the same, basically the same price. So there, so it really was kind of a cost to the manufacturers right. and to the retailers. And by the way, the RBST is very similar to GMOs, right. and, th- and the government has never, ever had an issue with it uh, in terms of the safety of consuming it for humans. It was in the FDA approval process for a long time for animal safety, and there are some animal safety issues mm-hmm. there to be fair about RBST.
0: Huh. Let's dive into some of those stigmatization issues with consumers, so with, we have it with GMOs and RBST, But what is driving consumers to disregard science, disregard the approval of government um, and and the information that's so accessible to us on the Internet? Is it the uncertainty that they have? Is it simply framing that companies have used? Or is it, you know, they're getting behind people like um, we have uh, Nassim Taleb, the famous statistician who is very against GMOs and talks about the uncertainty of the future and how he has a special name for it. Called um, the precautionary principle, and that changing the system in the short term can lead to irreversible damages in the long term, if because you don't know every impact that changing the genetics of a, a fruit a piece of fruit is going to have. So, do you guys have any thoughts about <laughs> about consumers and what what's really you know driving their perceptions? Is it a you know a mix of all of these different things? Is it just? That were so influenced. It's a
1: mix of all these things. But you you have to put yourself, uh, think of yourself as a consumer. How much time do you have to really study all these things? So, Mm -hmm. the the, the average consumer, and I would include myself in that category, Mm -hmm. is really a novice and and not an expert at all on these issues. So, when you see something like uh, this product doesn't contain this ingredient, that's kind of a warning signal. You kind of interpret it as a warning signal. So if I say, if I just made up a name, uh, you know, X Y Z, this this does not contain X Y Z, and and you can kind of see it's it's being framed in a negative way. You don't know what X Y Z is, but you don't want it, right? And so it's kind of a warning label, and that immediately, it, it's a natural response. on the part, I, I, so so that's where traditional economics, I think, fails is they don't realize that. Consumers, they have a behavior, and they will respond to a warning label. You know, and that's a very important thing. If the warning label looks really severe, you're going to not consume it at all.
2: So, so uh, I'll give a plug real quick because <laughs> I've got a, a MOOC that I've uh, conducted a GMO MOOC on uh, on edX actually we're just relaunching it this week. Um, I believe whenever this uh, this gets posted online it'll will we'll end up being live. And we try and talk about the politics and the science behind GMOs, both the science that you know of how they're studied and how we determine they're safe or not, but also how some of the political action behind it happens and how consumer perceptions are formed. And certainly you look at the science and from my point of view anyway, it's very hard to come up with stories that make it sound like it's really that scary. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are a whole bunch of sort of ascientific reasons people might be opposed, right? You, you might be opposed to, you know, Monsanto profiteering off of uh, of farmers or, or you might be opposed to the other things Monsanto has done. You might be opposed to, um, you know, to some religious aspects of, of GMO. You know, there are a whole bunch of other reasons why you might be interested in this. Some of those... Some of the opposition really, I think, is rooted in these ascientific reasons. Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of gets projected into people's scientific views yeah. um, regarding this. And that That gets, uh, that's sort of an interesting thing because people aren't going to change their minds and and arguing with them about the science isn't going to change their mind either. Yeah. And there, there might be some valid reasons why people would be cautious. And
1: there is such a level of distrust uh, with uh, on the part of consumers with respect to the industry and and some with respect to the government Uh, because you know there have been well people say well remember this and the government lied to me or whatever and unfortunately that's true there that we we have some had some cases where even the the scientific community was wrong so there is just this natural level of mistrust
2: unfortunately though there there are a lot of the problems that we face in the world that are are (laughs) <laughs> that can be addressed by GMOs. And so some of these negative, uh, you know, negative views and, and sort of misinterpretation or, or uh, idiosyncratic preferences that, that sort Same. of play into this can
1: have some pretty bad spillover effects on other people. So it's... Yeah. Yeah. Jackie, uh, David and I uh, wrote a, a, an op-ed that was published in the publication called The Hill okay. uh, this summer. And then we, we published something on Forbes. Touting kind of touting the benefits of GMO and and being very much against mandatory labeling because there's a lot mm-hmm. of unintended consequences there. But but some of the benefits, David, right? Are there's environmental benefits. Yeah. There's uh, hunger feeding feeding the starving war- world benefits, and these are not trivial benefits.
0: Yeah, they definitely should not be overlooked into the grand scheme of things. You know, future possibilities of changing the genetics of, of yeah. fruit and different things versus starving people. And, it's
2: and, and that's, the, I mean, to me, that's part of, I mean, my unease about, uh, about some of the political movements against are, are that they're painting with a broad brush. Mm-hmm. And is it possible that you could create GMOs that were harmful in some way? Yes. But that doesn't mean that GMOs can't be found that are extremely beneficial mm-hmm. um, and, you know, enough so to way outweigh any of the costs that they might have. To some, some specific populations where it really makes a difference. To you know, the poor who really need added food or or to farmers in places in the world where traditionally agricultural production just really suffers.
0: This reminds me of flu vaccine. In in a lot of ways, it's like, you know, you can apply it to agriculture, you can apply it to vaccines. It's people are stigmatizing a certain thing that can, you know, being widespread can actually benefit the world. Right. People are less sick, people you know, don't die. Like thousands, tens of thousands of people die from the flu every year. And still people are set against getting the vaccine. So it's just interesting that these political rooted opinions um, against GMOs, against vaccines, no matter what it be, it it really influences public perception. and, And it almost, and I've seen like different markets have been created, so you have regular vegetables, and then you have GMO-free organic vegetables, and and that almost you know it, it seems like an opportunity for product differentiation. But um, and I don't know if you have done any work on this. Do you just get back to square one, zero economic profit, when you when you change the game and everyone now has GMO? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole segment of GMO-free fruit and vegetables. It's kind well, of interesting. You
1: know, um, there's also an, un, an unintended consequence of mm-hmm. that. So if you introduce a new technology that it, it will lower costs, increase yields or whatever, but there is consumer backlash to that, you know, you really can cause havoc uh, yeah. uh, on, on the whole marketing system because what happens is, is twofold. One if you're effective, like the case of RBST, you pretty much can get rid of it. The consumers, through their sovereignty, can get get, get rid of rid of a product yeah. that is efficient, that has benefits like anti-global warming things like that. You need fewer cows if you if you have that. But a more important unintended consequence of that is when you do something like that, people have to realize how much technological progress there have been there has been in in the agricultural and food sector. It's the most technologically uh, progressive uh, sector uh, in the economy other than, say, computers. And because of that, we've been able to feed the world and reduce uh, hunger and that sort of thing. When you stigmatize a new technology, that really creates disincentives for companies to invest in new R&D, as well as governments to invest in new R&D. And our population, the world population, is going to double in the next 50 or 75 years. How are we going to feed all uh, these people? Um, the one way we could do it is through um, increasing, improving our yields through technological advances. But if you, if you get rid of those uh, incentives, then you're really creating a very bad problem.
2: Which, which argues for developing GMOs in a strategic way so that consumers benefit and producers benefit, not just one or the other. I mean, there, there has been that sort of shift towards thinking more about, well, what, what could the consumers really use? <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the early generations of GMOs were all improving yields or reducing uh, the amount of pesticides and chemicals that you had to put on there, which, which were good environmental types of things. But now they're looking at, well, we can, uh, we can sell you an apple, that you can cut it open and it won't brown, or potatoes that, that are cosmetically a lot better. They don't have the brown and that sort of right. thing. They Then they last longer, and you reduce food waste.
0: Right, and you know, increase nutritional benefits, nutrition content, things like that.
2: And when the consumer sees there's something in it for them, it makes it a little harder for them to stigmatize it.
0: And maybe with some positive
1: advertising, it,
0: it, it, there <laughs> so may be some psychological coping. Right. So, <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. And advertising is a way to frame it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, marketing—not uh, just advertising, but labeling things. Absolutely. Uh, you put a, you put positive information. So. Uh, Going back to the labeling and GMOs, so one of the conclusions that we had from one of our studies is that if mandatory labeling does become a law where you have to label, like, GMOs or whatever, one way to get around kind of the stigma is to also have the manufacturer put positive information about the GMOs on there. So this contains GMOs. And by the way, GMOs are really good for the environment because of this. Uh, GMOs are making... uh, Uh, A million fewer people die of starvation, you know, things like that. And people may even be willing to pay more for a GMO product if they see this positive information.
0: Well, this has, you know, been some very deep conversation here about, you know, we could potentially by, you know, considering GMOs, being more open to science and, you know, reading the article in The Hill um, by Professor Harry Kaiser and David Just. What's the title?
1: Good question. The title is something like GMOs are good for the environment and for the hungry. There you yeah. go. The poor. Yeah. It's not GMOs the hungry, the poor.
0: Good for the environment, and good for the poor. I mean, it, you can't get better than that. <laughs> Especially when you look at, yeah, with the cost and benefits of a new technology, it seems overwhelming, an overwhelming yes to GMOs. So, Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Kaiser. We really enjoyed talking about this, and it's given, you know, I think everyone's going to kind of consider the next time we see a stigma, whether it's (laughs) in the food industry or, you know, medical industry. And with that, everybody have a safe and happy weekend, and we'll see you next time.
2: Thanks, Jackie. Thank Thank you. Take care.